it's a death sentence for this week. Uh, okay, um, news. Um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Uh, he's dead. So it's kind of like a, a crap version of when Osama bin Laden died. Um, also, people booed uh, Donald Trump at a, a American football game. Baseball. Baseball. Okay. It's, it's a baseball game. All the same. It's all <laughs> pretend sports from your idiot continent. We um, have the best sports. No. Unless Baseball you're is about, a stick. Unless you're talking about wrestling, which is the best sport. We, then, we have that too. Yeah, but then everyone has that. And arguably Japan has the best wrestling. So Yeah, but they don't have Brock Lesnar. Okay, we're not gonna do we got we're not gonna do rest of this course. We got important, <laughs> important stuff. Also, Zack Sabre Jr. is my boyfriend. And um Okay. So we're gonna do proper discourse, okay? No more wrestling. Uh we're on the line with um Natriola, who has written a book called Steal As Much As You Can, which in about hundred and sixty-five pages Sorry, 163. 62. 60, 162 pages, people. Can you count, Gareth? I, I was I was wondering whether to count the notes, and if so, how many. I thought it was longer um, than that. I'm surprised it's so short. Yeah, I, I'm sure it felt I'm sure it felt big because it's <laughs> it's jam packed with like. Okay, so here's here's my like summation of the book. Uh, there's this um, obscure mid-century writer that you may have heard of called George Orwell. And he wrote a little book called 1984. And in it, he's, he one of his many obscure quotes, now lost to history, is that the best books often tell us what we already know. Now, that's going to sound really bad, like you've, you haven't written anything original or clever, but you have. Because, like, I, I, like, already know all of the stuff in this book. And I think everyone... I think most people reading it, apart from Americans, because they're ignorant, will already know it too. But what you've done, which is a cool and awesome achievement, and what makes this a good book worthy of talking about and being read by hopefully a shit ton of people, is that you've managed to sum up everything that any British person has been thinking or feeling for the last 10 years since the financial crisis, this lost decade. And you've basically made it so we don't feel like we're insane anymore. You know, we, right. you, made, you made people let, feel less alone for feeling that, like, since 2008 has been this horrible, miserable decade of just cultural vacuity and the rich slowly taking everything, including our already terrible culture. So, <laughs> I mean... Was well, that really, I mean, that's really nice to hear. Um, it, it's lovely to hear people saying things like that. That's why I wrote it. I wrote it because I felt frustrated and I figured if I felt frustrated, there were probably other people who did as well. Um, mm. And I wanted to start a conversation and hopefully build a sense of, you know, a small sense of community around the book and people who, um, who felt vindicated by what I say. But also I tried to include some recommendations for ways that we can also, as individuals, try and kind of get past this. Um, as opposed to just relying on the circumstances to change because they're not going to if we just sort of sit around and wait for things to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about those recommendations in a minute because that's not something I see very often, even in the, the like very good, very um, populist, but not in a bad way, books that uh, 
Repeater and Verso and people like that put out. There's not often a lot of um, self-help. Is that even the right term? I mean, it's, it's technically sure. the right term. It's got a bad connotation. Yeah, There's no, sure. nothing like saying, okay, if you do this in your daily life, things will start to get better, even if it's just for you. And then you can find other people and make everything get better. There's... And also, I think as well, you know, the way that I've written it and the actual suggestions that I've prescribed are sort of, you know, they go against the wisdom of most self-help. So most self-help will tell you kind of, you know, ways to kind of conform and how to kind of like survive the present system and get through it and to kind of climb the ladder and do all of that stuff so I think that's how a lot of self-help books have been written and actually a lot of the recommendations that I make in the book and the things that I advocate for are well actually you know going against it and and seeking to subvert it in different ways or boycotting it in different ways and actually through that I've you know these are things that I've done myself you actually you know you can find a, a lot of hope a lot of optimism a lot of self-confidence um and actually that tendency to want to kind of like conform and and just sort of put up with the circumstances as they are um and accept the inequality of it and just try to kind of function within that I think has been the root of a huge amount of people's depression um, anxiety, various different mental health problems, and just this sense of this general sense of malaise that I've seen across people of my generation. And mm. I just, I got so sick of seeing it that I wanted to try and, you know, really think about ways that we could stop it and try something new. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's very perfect for me because it's, um, you talk uh, shortly before then about uh, the, ironically called creative agencies and the way they work and I work in one of those and it's um yeah I was thinking about this book a lot at work today it's um yeah it's my first day back at work after reading it and um yeah I think I'm gonna I, I'm gonna try and lend this to a few people at work just to kind of like uh blue pill a few of them but um so so instead of talking about the the cure let's talk about the disease because um you kind of identify that this lost decade since financial crash has happened with uh, basically the rich taking over British culture to, to massively oversimplify. Yeah. So can you talk a bit more about um, you know, what, what has actually happened and why, is it, why has that happened? So I came at this, I mean, my first job when I left university well like, you know my first job when I left university was working in bars and tutoring and doing various internships and trying to make ends meet but the first proper job that I got the first full-time job that I got a few years after I left university was working as a writer at Dazed and Confused magazine which is you know in to all intents and purposes a really you know great job it would you know been something that I've been very excited about for, were it not for the fact that they didn't pay they didn't pay very good salaries back then so a lot of people I was working with were independently wealthy um, and that's how they were able to kind of survive in that environment. Um, and I was also having to work other jobs to make ends meet. Um, but while I was there, you know, I was writing a lot of the book reviews. I was writing a lot of the film reviews. I'm less of a music writer, but I would, I would kind of dabble in that from time to time. And it was there that I started to get slightly frustrated with like cultural output. And I, you know, you get sent all these books all these all the time. You get sent to these film screenings or screenings or whatever. And there's lots of like. There was lots of stuff being produced that was exactly fine. It was just fine. But nothing was really sort of like 
you know, nothing was blowing up, nothing felt exciting. There were none of these kind of like big cultural moments anymore. And I heard loads of people lamenting that and blaming the internet, right? And saying that we simply doesn't happen because of the internet, which never really washed with me. I didn't really understand it because it does still happen. And you see it happen actually a lot more in America than it does in the UK, but you see stars being born on the internet and actually the internet's very good if, if, if it's good for anything it's allowing these kind of like big cultural moments to happen and for ideas to spread very quickly and for large audiences to get excited about things so i never really accepted the idea that it was the internet's fault that we were kind yeah. of having these big yeah. cultural moments um and then over the years like, i left days and i carried on as a journalist freelancing you know engaging with all of this stuff and i thought there were lots of different things at play um one, there was just this, it was inescapable that our kind of collective culture had become far more sort of like low C conservative, just like far more safe, far more risk averse. Um, and what that meant in real terms was, as I was starting to see it, was that every it was being wrought along class lines. So the risk aversion was being wrought along class lines, um, insofar as you know, middle-class children who came from affluent families who went to nice schools or whatever were unlikely to really, like, offend the sensibilities of the middle-class establishment who a lot of these industries relied on for um, uh, uh, for sales, you know, that these are the people with the money and they needed to please them because they're the ones that were going to buy the records and the books, etc. So a lot so a lot of the people that they were commissioning, you know, a lot of the new pop stars and musicians that you were seeing emerge or whatever came from these very, very affluent backgrounds. And the work that they were producing was sort of squarely set within that milieu. It was all about kind of like, you know, the, the quiet troubles of the middle class establishment or whatever. So that was one of the yeah. things. The second one was me then also looking at my own personal circumstances and, and my friends, etc. And also noticing that because a lot of these creative industries um, had to kind of tighten their purse strings post 2008, um, there was less money flying around for them to kind of invest in like nurturing talent, finding people from, you know, working class backgrounds who might not naturally end up kind of gravitating towards those industries or whatever. And so there was a huge amount of like nepotism that was happening. So basically they were just kind of hiring their friends' kids because it was just easier to kind of easier and cheaper to hire in that way. Um, but also the only people who could really afford to go and work in those industries were people who were independently wealthy or who lived in London and could live with that, you know, stay with their parents for free, which is also um, symptomatic of a certain kind of social standing. Um, and so I thought, you know, the two things are sort of happening. Um, and it just seemed like the whole thing was being primed for like very affluent upper middle class people to prosper. But it almost seemed impossible for anyone from a working class background, particularly a working class background outside of London, to be able to enter into one, any one of these industries. And that really alarmed me and really, you know, really concerned me as someone that cares about culture and has always really enjoyed culture that's produced by working class people. And I, in the book, I detail a lot of writers um, musicians, storytellers, artists, etc., uh, from similar backgrounds to mine, working class, you know, working class, uh, one from the Midlands, but, you know, at, north of the M25. I'm really interested in kind of work that's created in that kind of, in that milieu. Um, and um, so I started to think about all of that. And at the same time, I was also encountering the work of people like Mark Fisher and Stuart Hall. And all of these things kind of conspired together a few years ago for me to start to see them not as just these kind of like frustrating phenomena but seeing it as symptomatic of deep structural political forces and it, I was able to kind of then go back and look at what 
Thatcher and Blair had done in terms of kind of like dismantling any kind of working class identity, but also the funding streams that were going into the systems of support for working class artists and able to start charting that thing to look at what had happened and what had led to the present moment. Um, and so the book was a kind of like fortuitous um, confluence of all those things coming together, of my own experience, of me being a journalist of culture and somebody who was constantly analysing, critiquing this stuff, and then also encountering the work of these brilliant left-wing cultural theorists who had contextualised this stuff um, in slightly different ways. You know, I'm, I'm writing in a slightly different context of people like Mark Fisher and Stuart Hall. They had their own interests, their own specific interests or whatever, but they showed me that you could actually look at this stuff um, through a kind of structural lens and that there was far bigger kind of forces at play. Uh, driving a lot of this stuff and that to me was fascinating and basically set the tone for what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Yeah I mean, we've kind of been seeing uh, so much stuff uh, kind of second generation Mark Fisher at the moment and um, Repeater has been great at putting out his uh, people influenced by his stuff and you know it, it's kind of almost become a cliche that if you listen to a leftist podcast you're going to be listening to two guys talk about Mark Fisher for 90 minutes. Right which yeah. uh, is basically IMO. And um, it's just a pity that he wasn't, you know, that he's not here to see all of these yeah. fantastic, um, you know, all of these people who are creating work, really valuable work in the tradition that he helped, you know, create slash continue. Yeah. And um, Stuart Hall, um, I've come across his stuff before, but um, I don't think he's probably very well known outside of the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. So Stuart Hall, Stuart Hall was arguably an, an, a bigger influence on me than Mark Fisher. Um, and he's known for a few things. I mean, he's, he's known. So uh, Stuart Hall is uh, Jamaican. He came um, over to the UK on a Rhodes Scholarship to study at Oxford. Um, and I think he was, I might be wrong, but I think he was studying English literature. Um, and he wrote about that experience in, in his final biography, which I would really recommend. It's called um, Familiar Stranger. Um, and so a lot of his work at that time and subsequently uh, was about sort of ra racial representation, race relations, um, post-colonialism, etc. And so he's very well known for that. And oftentimes, you know, he'll be used as kind of shorthand for that. Um, the other thing that he was, well, he, he was part of lots of left wing groups and he's part of the new left. Um, and he was part of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, and he... Then he went to the University of Birmingham and he, co he founded this or co-founded the School for um, Cultural Theory and uh, Cultural Studies, sorry, Cultural Studies. And um, so he also, the other thing that Stuart Hall is very well known for is advocating a kind of um, a critical approach to kind of pop culture and pop cultural phenomenon. And sort of before him and before that school opened at Birmingham, there wasn't really that much like academic credence given to that as a subject um so oftentimes when people talk about Stuart Hall they'll use him to justify a kind of like a uh, serious or like political reading of certain pop cultural phenomenon now I have a I have a criticism of the way that that's often done because um often you'll see people using Stuart Hall to justify like a Marxist reading of the latest Marvel movie which is a little bit facile and a little bit superficial and it wasn't really what Stuart Hall was doing he wasn't sort of saying you know we can just kind of pick and choose like you know the latest Billie Eilish song and therefore and, and analyze it through a kind of left-wing Marxist lens it was it was calling for a kind of like deeper uh 
kind of critical engagement with the world around us and and the phenomena that we interact with every single day so the images that were fed I mean he was writing before an age of social media but I'm sure that would have fascinated him but like the things we watch on tv the types of movies that are being commissioned the sounds that we're listening to the pop music and asking us to look at them through a kind of like Marxist post-colonial lens to understand where they were coming from and the forces that, that, were, that were driving them um so I really um I really, really, really got excited when I first encountered that idea and I first encountered it in his writing. Now, the other thing that he also did, which I think is really important, but he's, well, he's less known for this, really, um, was um, he was talking about how the Overton window, uh, which is the... The Overton window is the kind of, like, scope of political thought that is permitted by mainstream thinking and, and permitted by the mainstream media in any given... Um, in any given society um and so people argue now that we that our overton window is very 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 right wing so that the ideas of the left um and the ideas of socialism just seem completely inconceivable and completely absurd and he documented this happening in the 90s um he was writing lots of essays called like, there was a famous essay called the great moving right show and he was arguing that margaret thatcher had pulled the overton window so the the spectrum of political opinion that we considered reasonable um, had been pulled so far to the right that the left was now stood the left the left now faced a huge huge challenge in ever bringing left wing kind of political thought back into the mainstream and he said then it will take decades it will take decades for this to happen and it will take some major political and socioeconomic events to happen to kind of smash that malaise and be able to kind of like burst open the kind of like prism of opinion again and that's what happened with the the financial crisis of 2008 um and i think that 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 caught the rise of corbyn or corbynism or whatever was the resurgence in proper left-wing thinking and it achieving mainstream prominence in in british minds basically mm, yeah. um that was something that he'd almost like predicted, not not the specifics of it, he didn't predict the specifics of it, but he kind of predicted that an event of that kind would smash complacency and would lead to a resurgence in left-wing thinking, which is precisely what happened with Corbynism. Um, yeah, you've got like um, Navarra Media, you've got uh, Owen Jones and Asha Carr on TV every other day. It's, um yeah. Right. And um, yeah, it's there has been a genuine resurgence in that, which is... We see we see strong parallels of that in America too. That um, that was a, a global shifting point for this great rightward shift that had been marked, not just in Britain, but like <clears throat> the 90s saw the Clintons bring a new um, centrist ideology to the Democratic Party, where before it was, you know, the party of not extreme leftism, but you have Jimmy Carter who's significantly more left than a lot of mainstream Democrats in America now um, saw similar things in Europe over the course of the nineties as this, um, like as elements of the EU were pitched as this, um, leftward unifying motion, but then sort of became a rightward, uh, coalition of capital. Um, yeah, that exactly. So that, that financial crisis was a, uh, a, a beautiful fucked up hammer to all of that. I mean, it's, um, heartbreaking that it had to be something as catastrophic as that that did so like deeply damage so many lives um globally not just not even just in the primary nations of where the collapse occurred but also in countries uh far flung from there but uh 
yeah, that 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 notion that it had to be this eruptive moment because these small it, it almost contributes a bit to my um my art negativity at times is we had brilliant social critics the entire time during that rightward march pointing out exactly what was happening, describing the exact mechanics of it. Um like the people that influenced and developed uh, Mark Fisher, who then developed a lot of us now, were were writing then just just like how we tap into Mark Fisher now, just eloquently pointing out like this is the mechanics of what I'm witnessing, and it seems like no one is paying attention and no one wants it to stop. Um, and so, like almost painfully crying out for an eruptive moment because it's it felt so much. Like, no amount of social criticism, no matter how good it was, was going to have any real effect until shit hit the fan. And the the machine couldn't keep itself moving uh, in regular operation anymore. Are we getting a little close to accelerationism there, though? Like, there's likely to be another big financial collapse coming. Would that, is that going to make things I mean, worse financially but better culturally? I think that framing it in terms of accelerationism, uh, this is how far down the rabbit hole I've gone. I think that's too optimistic um, because I think it frames it as these big inflection points always make things better. And that's not really true. The march towards it's more explicit. It's always darkest before dawn. It's not always darkest before dawn kind of thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, we've seen also the most strident march towards um, far right wing ideology like um like open marching towards it. We've always seen, we've had left critics accurately pointing out that there have been elements of these far right ideologies embedded in popular culture, um, uh, both in a, in the political sphere, in the art sphere, in the sociological sphere. But in the past like 10 ish years, it's become a great deal more like foregrounded and explicit. Um, actually really since post, 9-11, um, which seemed to fuck all of the world right in its brain. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it's really optimistic to think it makes things better. I do think that the um, step zero of accelerationist thought, which is that major events of major impact make us reevaluate society. I think that part's true, but I don't think it's a guarantee that that reevaluation one is equally dispersed across a field, thinking uh, thinking almost Deleuzian here. I think we can't imagine that it's going to be equally distributed, and I can't I don't think we can imagine the types of thoughts will be equally distributed either. Hmm. Um, so we're going to get some people reach, say, a financial meltdown, and their response is going to be an anti-collectivist. Well, I've got fuck you, I've got to get mine. Um, then we're going to see. Um, the types of people who make like populism a dirty word, even though in a democratically oriented society, it really shouldn't be, um, in that they view, they've drawn bubbles beyond themselves, but still are largely centered on themselves. So that's where like white supremacy is done by people who want a collectivist bubble, but they want themselves in the center of it in some way. And they fear that decentering same with like patriarchal impulse or um, uh, queer phobia is that you you're trying to place the image of you in the center, even if not specifically you, and you're willing for it to be 
some other rich white guy, so long as white guys in general are somewhere in the center there, because that means there's an avenue for you. Um, but those are going to crop up at roughly the same amount as, say, leftward collectivist approaches of, oh, shit, we are all in this fucking boat together and we all have to band together or everyone dies of climate collapse. So, yeah, yeah, I think that accelerationists more get critiqued on the bounds of their, they build a kind of delusional, um, a delusional optimism off of the backs of the delirium of the intense negativity that they come off of. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I think I think also what you're what you're saying as well kind of tallies with a view that I have, which is that like the status quo has has been obliterated. It it basically has been proven to not work. And if we face another recession, which is what's being predicted, then that will only be confirmed a second time. And so the the truth is that like the status quo can't be upheld. It's just it, it's faltering. It's continually faltering. Um. So we have to find an alternative. And now basically you have to pick sides. You ha- you have to come. You know either you stand for individualism, which as you as you say will be a you know a, a massive upshot of what we're seeing, or you choose the alternative, which is collective act. You know collective action and um and you know kind of socialist way out of this. Um. And I think that the kind of the people sitting on the fence who are just kind of like accusing the left of being you know extreme or naive or whatever are sort of missing the point like the status quo has 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 been broken and now we have to for an alternative you have to pick a side basically um anyway but um yeah that kind of leads me to saying a, a passage i really liked in a book um i don't have it in front of me but where you talk about uh the depiction of working class people on TV has basically you know, kind of disappeared in this last few years. Or when they when they come up, they're they're shown to be clowns and fools, and their culture is uh, just to be derided. And the the importance you say of having working class people and their culture on TV and in the culture in general is that through that people learn that they matter, like they have a place in the world, and even in like a democratic uh, bourgeois electoralism world you know if if you think you matter you'll go out and vote and you'll probably vote for something that is in your best interest you're not going to vote like you know brexit and trump voters did just against the system because you don't see yourself as as part of it you might vote better from our point of view uh, because you think things can get better because you're like you're there they have to get better for you um so yeah that was kind of one of my kind of favorite insights that you that you offered there and why it was so important um so i'm just thinking of like over the last 10 years of culture in britain what has what what have been like the main offenders in terms of like tv shows films books even anything that have they've really done some damage to the working class's perception of itself and have kind of positioned the rich as the only people worth talking about. Yeah. Well, so this is twofold, right? So I think that there are, I think there's like programming that is actively very, very, very harmful to the working class, which is uh, a lot of the reality TV show formats that I mentioned. 
Um, and thankfully, there's been a bit of a pushback on those, but it did take people literally dying. You know, we've had, there's a show called Love Island in the UK, which is a reality TV show, and two former contestants of that have subsequently killed themselves. And so, you know, after three after three deaths, off you know, Ofcom steps in and says, you know, maybe we should impose limits on these shows or cancel them all together or whatever. So that's finally happening. But, you know, these shows have been on TV for decades now, and they've been really harming the image of the working class because they choose you know they they take people who are in very vulnerable situations um and they perpetuate the idea that the working class are kind of feckless that they need help that they uh, that they don't know how to live they don't know responsibility etc cetera, etc cetera. um and i've also extended that analysis to things like um those competition shows like x factor and things where um mm. contestants come on to do performances of songs um and there's like the at the worst end of that scale there are like there's ridicule of people who you know who might be suffering from various mental health problems or they might have a slightly you know warped view of their talent or whatever and should have been maybe discouraged to go on the show but they go on in hope of you know succeeding and being able to achieve financial prosperity which is a motivation that i think all of us could sympathize with for people that you know don't come from affluent backgrounds wanting to kind of you know secure that for themselves and they come on and they try their best and there's like an audience of people pointing and laughing at them and then i mean and then i often think about like well what happens you know when that person goes for a job interview you know they're going to get recognized like it, the, the repercussions for them are huge so it harms the image of the working class it it causes a great deal of actual harm to the contestants um and i think all of it is just like complete it has no place in a civilized society and needs to be either you know gotten rid of altogether or you know or these programs need to be changed dramatically to become more humane but then i also sort of extend it to documentary formats as well so this is this is a bit quieter so it's not as obvious what's happening but even when you watch kind of documentary formats you know even those made by people like louis theroux or whatever often the subjects are you know and they are subjects are working class people who come from very poor backgrounds who um you know might have had to resort to different uh sorts of lifestyles that the middle classes find odd or dangerous or entertaining or whatever and whether that's about you know whether that has to do with like drug consumption or sex work or, or whatever i mean it, it can it manifests in lots of different ways and there's this, this like very sort of quiet but like patronizing and, and sardonic lens with which those stories are told because the producers are mainly middle class the directors are mainly middle class the presenters are mainly middle class so the lens with which these stories are being told is always in this kind of like slightly judgmental slightly condescending slightly sneering way um so i think that's also had a huge impact on that uh, on the sort of um the sort of perception of working class communities but also like the, the you know working class communities self own sense of uh, morale and self-esteem um so both those are, are problematic but then more broadly than that just the fact that like the the mainstay of like drama that we've seen in the last few years and it's been stark like there are now more shows i mean there are so many tv shows that are about the aristocracy or the royal family we have like downton abbey then we have the crown mm -hmm. and they're like explicitly about like you know the highest ranks of the british society but then beyond that you have these comedy shows that are just about very 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 middle class uh people things obviously like fleabag being the most obvious example at the moment i don't want to you know i don't want to like bash fleabag loads because it's a woman and you know whatever and i understand it but like and it would be fine if it was one of many different things in a whole kind of like broad spectrum of different stories but it's so typical of the type of story that gets told now at the expense of any kind of working class story of just people living in like 
big houses in London with their kind of, you know, their affluent parents and the stakes are so low. Does he like me? Does he not like me? Am I going to get the job? Am I not going to get the job? It's, um, and all of that, all of that kind of builds to a climb, you know, build, create a climate where working class people just don't see themselves represented. And when they do, it's in really derisory, exploitative terms. And that, I think, has a huge, huge impact on the way that the working class see themselves. And one thing that it does is it makes working class people feel like they're worthless. But on the other side of it, no one wants to identify with that, right? No one wants to look at that and be like, oh, that's those are people like me. They come from a similar socioeconomic background to me. So what it does is it it creates a dynamic whereby people want to kind of like deny that they're working class or deny that that's their background. And then that minimizes the likelihood of there being a kind of like collective working class identity, which is obviously really, really important in the formation of like political movements that support the working class. Um, so I think those are the worst culprits. I mean, you can also look at like, you know, I've talked about film stars, how there's all these sort of like Dem Benedict Cumberbatch characters now. I mean, you had like, you had Hugh Grant literally in the 90s, like the one posh English gent who played all those roles or whatever. And now like most British actors are kind of cut from the same cloth, you know, floppy haired, exitonian, etc. Um, uh, pop music, you know, a lot of the like, a lot of the sort of, pop bands, indie bands, et cetera, that you saw emerge in like the mid 2000s and 2010s came from very sort of like middle-class comfortable backgrounds. Their music was about that. Um, I do talk in the book about the exception of grime. So grime has almost, you know, almost miraculously given all of what I've just spoken about, risen to mainstream prominence. But like I say in the book, I mean, Dizzy Rascal won the Mercury Music Prize in 2003. Um, Skepta won it a whole 16 years later and still when Skepta won it they were kind of hailing it as this kind of like emergent um as this emergent new genre isn't it amazing that like British urban music is like finally getting like you know is is, is breaking through into the mainstream and it's like no these guys have been you know chipping away at this stuff for decades and only now are you bothering to let them in because you've excluded them for so long um, and so it was a crime almost that Grime had to wait that long for it to achieve any mainstream prominence. And what's really interesting is at the point where the mainstream acknowledged it, I mean, the Mercury Music Prize isn't even that mainstream. It's not like the Brit Awards or whatever, but like at the time that the mainstream acknowledged it, those people who've been, you know, for those people who were invested in Grime, who really loved it or whatever, the genre was almost over at that point. So it was not only was it like they slow to catch up, they'd almost, they'd almost like missed the boat. Um, so yeah, this is all a very long kind of like roundabout way of saying that, you know, it was happening across the board. Um, I think I find the example of TV quite a good one to use because I think it's it's been most vivid there with regard to those kind of um reality TV show formats, etc. Okay, yeah, great. Uh, like that's yeah, like I say, it's it's something every every British person knows by now. I don't think anyone's gonna disagree with that. It's just been told it. And knowing that you're not insane for thinking it. Right. It's, uh, oh, sorry. Um, so it was reassuring to me, even as an American reading that, um, because one, you mirrored in your book a lot of thoughts that I've had over the past year or two years. I mean, obviously with roots going back, things that I've muttered about on Twitter, but felt this weird disconnect regarding. Um, I'm... Uh, very much a working class person. My day job is the ultra luxurious managing a sandwich shop. Um, I'm not paid salary, 
it's an hourly wage. It's not a very high one. Um, and so everything beyond there, like writing fiction, writing poetry, writing um, critical essays about culture, uh, running this podcast, are all additional things that you wind up having to do the working class version of turning it into a gig in order to, um, we get we get this weird pushback of like, oh, you don't have to monetize, you know, your leisure time. And it's like, thanks, you middle class fuck. I actually do um, yeah. in order to make rent, like trying to convey that to people. It's not to justify it to myself. It's that I legit can't get food consistently if I don't monetize every little thing that I do. Um, and it gives you a certain pathology that culture not just in Britain, but in America as well, I can very much speak to this, wants you, if you're working class, to have only one of two mindsets regarding yourself. One, to hate yourself and hate your condition. Not, not hate the condition capital is placed on you, but then to pathologize it that being working class is the infuriating thing. That it's not... It's not that the way you are treated by society is the infuriating thing. It's the fact that, say, you're a retail worker or you work in food service or you're a garbage man. It no longer becomes about wages and wage relation, but it becomes a question of identity and then a question of asking you to tie your maltreatment to that identity and not to the maltreatment itself. Um, hmm. And... The only other response we seem to find from a lot of people is this weird inversion of it, which uh, the book reading Hegelian in me loathes as pure negation. I'm like, oh, that's vile. Ugh. Of It becomes like a hagiography of working class life that it becomes like, oh, I struggle and society treats me like shit. And that's mine. It's like, no, that's it. <laughs> it like it deeply pathologically breaks people. They learn to either hate working class life not the conditions of the working class but the life itself to feel it shameful to be a mechanic or um again to work in fast food even though it's like these are objectively um no hate on gareth but we've had this discussion before you objectively measure what job brings more to societies or communities and it's predominantly working class jobs they're the ones who make yeah. sure that no, I, I have a bullshit job and I know it. It's like they make sure that your the lavish things that we all have in our homes, our microwaves, our dishwashers, our refrigerators, our televisions, make sure those work, that manufacture them, that deliver them, that make sure that the people who deliver them can deliver them because their cars work, that give you the food or even the mostly prepackaged food because no, no one's making pasta from raw flour anymore in 2019. If you do, it's almost a bougie affectation um, that you learn. It's forced upon you both in popular culture in terms of like art and media, but then also in terms of cultural relation that it's not those it's not the fact that society treats you like a shit who didn't live up to your potential if you become working class, but it it is the fact that somehow like working in a diner is is beneath you. You're supposed to be a great artist as yeah. though 
and I, I love art, but let's be honest, adding another okay band to the list versus feeding people every day, one of those has a more real tangible value. Agreed. Agreed. Um, and so that the the power for me, even as an American reading your book, is hearing that hearing those same thoughts um, carried out and articulated so well and carried out in relation to a closely tied but non-identical culture that really underscored for me what Gareth was talking about of like feeling like these thoughts have been swirling around, but it's like someone's finally saying them in a place where people might hear them. Mm. And so it's just like this massive wave of relief reading your book because it's like Gareth was saying, it's like, holy shit, I'm not insane. I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not cracking up when I tell people like, no, I can be proud of being working class, but I don't have to like the conditions that working class people are put through. But also I don't think I'm a saint for feeding people. That's weird. Like this yeah, yeah. should be a normal job. Yeah, completely, completely. It, it's, <laughs> I've always found that really bizarre. I've always found that really, uh, that kind of, um, there was a thing actually this week, there was a story in The Guardian that was like, I don't know if you saw it, loads of people were sharing it on Twitter and it was one of the Guardian journalists saying like, um, I never, I'm never more aware of my working class <laughs> origins than when I'm hiding from my cleaner in the other room or something. Did you see it? Uh, yeah, and I saw it and then immediately wrote it in the back matter, in the blank page at the back of your book because I knew I'd right. want to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, right. that was... No, it's yeah. like, what, like... I mean, I, I think that encapsulates everything you've just talked about, right? Of this kind of like this shame that you have to escape, you know, you have to escape to the middle class and then being, you know, the spectacle of, of a working class person is like shameful and embarrassing. But then also there are these like saint-like figures who like just do these wonderful jobs that I couldn't possibly ever, you know, conceive, you know, consider doing myself now that I've kind of like risen the ranks of the middle class or whatever. And mm. it just seemed like one headline that kind of captured everything you said there and just obviously it left a really bad taste in the mouth. Um, mm. Yeah, David, yeah. David Graeber talked talks about this a, a lot in uh, his bullshit jobs book and his articles of how yeah. like um like working class people like your know, teachers nurses cleaners they're they're paid in oh well done it's so good of you to be able to to be able to do this job i can never do that it's so it's so great that you wake up every morning and uh commute three hours to clean my house for me that that's their pay is they get this little bravo pat on the back yeah, for being yeah, yeah, so yeah. saintly yeah. Well, you know um, what else I find very interesting as well, right, is because um, my family have always been very working. My dad's family are immigrants, so their story's a little bit different and a bit more complicated. But my mum's family are very, like, industrial working class, have been for generations or whatever. And what's very interesting to me is despite the fact that my granddad worked in a factory and my nan was a cleaner in the factory, they led nice lives. Like, they didn't – being working class didn't equate to being, like – in poverty it didn't mean you couldn't make ends meet or whatever and again this is what was created by thatcher and reagan they deliberately pulled the blanket of security out from um out from people so m making the work making working class life untenable so you had no choice but to escape it whereas once upon a time being working class had a load of dignity associated with it you know you had a job for life you were unionized you had rights you had friends you know that you worked with that you could form meaningful relationships with because you worked with them for years on end and you could afford a nice life you know because because the price of stuff was lower right because everything hadn't been subject to financialization so houses were reasonably you know reasonably affordable cars were etc so yeah they had this kind of like this relatively comfortable life and i find that it's um 
you know, that's why there was no pity or like shame associated with doing any one of those jobs because it was like it was a point of pride actually to them. And that's why I find quite interesting because I think a lot of like a lot of problems were born of the fact that under the conditions that were created by Thatcher and Reagan, everyone was told, actually, if you want to achieve any kind of security or stability, you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to like work 10 jobs and earn inordinate amounts of money because the price of things is going up and because everything is being subject, you know, just kind of like handed over to market logic, which is obviously going to kind of like race the bottom and the prices of stuff are going to go up. And um, I find that really fascinating because I think that, yeah. yeah. It just kind of it created set off a kind of like chain a chain reaction of kind of chaotic circumstances that led to at the present moment. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I can definitely see it everywhere I go in Britain. Like when I used to live in Macclesfield, the high street is just charity shop, vape shop, charity shop, vape shop, vape shop, vape shop, and then some like bullshit uh, small plates restaurant opened by some guy who did way too much coke. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's like every high street in Britain now. There'll be yeah. like something that's clearly for people who are desperate and impoverished, or there'll be something on the way other end that's clearly for people who are very rich, but a very small number of them. There's no there's no middle class any. There's no like if you were if you were going by the high street, you wouldn't think there was a single middle class person in Britain. You'd think yeah. it was either desperately poor or insanely wealthy. I'm remarkably unfun to go out with uh, with certain types of friends because we'll we'll go to That's like oh oh this new this new restaurant opened let's go check out the and my brain immediately shifts into you walk in you see like they're hanging uh, slate like slabs of slate on the wall and the food right. is brought out yeah. on a plank of wood and I'm like this is bougie and I'm looking at the the menu and it's like an appetizer was $13 and I'm like how how can you stomach coming in here and they're like Langdon we haven't even gotten water yet and I'm like this is just disgusting to me and they're like Langdon please we don't need we don't need the lenin right now um but I I also ventured that what you're actually what you're actually kind of allergic to or resistant to and what you don't like about that situation which I think is something because I have exactly the same reaction to you but that is that once upon a time like and you see you know if you go to like I find this really remarkable if you go to like you know Mediterranean countries or whatever there were like hundreds of like bars and restaurants and stuff you know in like in, in well in resorts whatever but in villages there'll be several of them and you'll see whole families working class families sat around the table eating right because the point of that little establishment is to you know is to be able to run enough profit to be able to support itself or whatever but it's meant to just like you know offer a space for like families and people to come and like and socialize and, and you know and, and be together and join together or whatever but what happens is in a, in a an economy that functions more like america and britain where everything is given over to financialization is that like the restaurant or the bar or whatever or these places that were once a space for kind of like social activity that formed a kind of pillar of the community are just designed and set up to bring a return to capitalism so they're just set up to kind of like you know, to extort money from you, basically. So if you want to do anything with your friends, you know, it becomes harder and harder to do anything with your friends. It's just like low cost and enjoyable, you know, that kind of like supports the local establishment so it can keep running and so that the proprietor is able to kind of like pay his wages and, you know, look after himself. And it starts just to become like more and more and more commercialized because it's just how can we get more and more and more money out of people? It um, turns into uh, the capitalization of... I was talking to a friend about this recently, but it, it has a really close tie to this, the capitalization of of like the term foodie, which has existed in food writing for about like two-ish decades, I think. Um, but it had 
initial connotations of someone who's just a general adventurous eater. It's like, hey, there's a Peruvian restaurant. Have you ever had Peruvian food? No? Well, let's let's check it out. Or like, hey, this place is serving uh, like this uh, like fried cricket dish from this country. I've never had it. Maybe I'll hate it. Maybe I'll love it. Let's try it. And it so initially had those connotations of someone who's willing to go out and try the different kinds of cuisines of the world available to them without necessarily a predisposition to loathe it without having tasted it. And then it developed into this weird, the like the weird Instagram spectacle of uh, looking at like, hey, here's a cup of coffee with 10 scoops of ice cream on it and it's covered in gold and there's an entire American flag inside of it. And like, <laughs> yeah. And seeing that also replicated in restaurants where it seems that the, the thing that, so all art is relatively simple and food is thankfully the simplest art of all of them. It needs just to be nourishing. That's, that's the only thing it needs to be. It doesn't necessarily need to be nutritious, doesn't need to be fancy. It can be fancy or it can be cheap. It just needs to have that thing. And we can find that in really great fancy restaurants of this deep sense of nourishment. We can find that in really small diners. And the infuriating thing of turning something that's like uh, so intimate, like communion of food and drink with uh, loved ones, be they friends or family or anything like that, chosen family, and making that into this weird spectacle and then driving this like mass social media pathology around that, around the spectacle. It's like it's driving it towards the the capital end of come come to my small plate restaurant to have these like weird unique dishes or stand in line for um uh, like it's it's not the existence of the cronut that is offensive. There's not it, it's a type of food. Maybe no, maybe it, it tastes good. But it's yeah, it's it's the it's the spectacle of capital that surrounds it that so utterly divorces um and not only utterly divorces food from that nourishing place that someone like Anthony Bourdain would talk about very, very eloquently with people all over the world about, but has that secondary effect that now the kind of dignity of I own a restaurant that feeds people. That's sort of, there's a dignity there even when the business is not doing great, when it's doing fantastic. It's a dignity that pervades even when it's like, uh, so in America we have a chain diner called Denny's um, and it's like weirdly beloved by people. It's not that the food is great. There's just that vibe you can, they're open 24 hours a day. Uh, the other similar one is Waffle House. You can go in and get a cheap as fuck waffle and a cheap as fuck cup of coffee with a really nice waiter or waitress at like three in the morning. And there's, yeah. a, there's a real power to that. And then seeing that perverted into like, oh, all the walls have to be glass. And we have these, these beautiful leather chairs for okay food. Like okay at best food. Uh, yeah, yeah completely. Completely. Mm. Yeah. I think food culture's fucked. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but as a as a former uh soldier in the literary wars, as a as a book critic, like I wanted to talk a little bit about your um your chapter on like literary culture right now, because it's is another one <laughs> where like as someone who's worked in publishing for a bit, who's been reading, writing and 
done all the, you know, done all that stuff. Fuck, we've run this podcast for for two yeah. years. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we've been we've been in we've been in the trenches. Like uh, that was like a really resonant. Um, <laughs> the problem with tastefulness chapter that was a really resonant one for me because um, yeah, I've I've so I've got this friend who is a brilliant writer. He I I went to UEA, which rich people know is a big deal for creative writing. Um, I, a lot of my friends got book deals and publishing and stuff. One friends even got a big prize but um i got this one friend on my course who's a brilliant brilliant writer and he's working class and he wrote a, a great really amazing no novel about a guy on like a zero hours contract cleaning out council houses of dead bodies and stuff it was it was really good I, he gave me an early draft it was absolutely amazing and uh, even even if I was just giving him benefit of doubt because he's my friend, it, it, it's at least as good as anything on the bookshelves right now. And he got a he got an agent, like the top agency in London, the people who represent like Thomas Pynchon and Ian McEwan and people. And the agent went out and took it to the publishers and they like flatly rejected it. Like there wasn't even a question about whether they're going to take a book about being poor in Britain by a poor British author. It was like it was like he had written a book composed entirely of full stops and was asking to if it could be published. Um so Natalie, why why did my friend not get his book published? What was happened to British writing that a, a very good book that should be popular didn't get published? What was what is going on here? It makes me really angry to hear that. First of all, like, it, and that, and I've heard similar stories, you know, across different disciplines um, from lots of different people, um, and I have friends in similar, like, similar circumstances. Um, I, I was getting really frustrated. I mean, books, I think, really are the place where the stakes have become so low and the output has become so insipid. I mean, really, mm. really, absurdly insipid. Like just not saying anything. If I see another book with a fucking sorry to be rude, but like peach or like millennial pink covered book, like <laughs> duck jacket, that's just like a memoir. And then like you read them. I've read so many of these things now because I was sort of you know I had to read them that are just like nonsense. They're just you know they're just middle class people with like very very quiet low stakes problems that just sort of want to you know poeticize them and kind of and you know sit there and experiment with language it's incredibly self-indulgent sort of like flexing their creative writing muscles whereas like the rest of us are looking for meaningful stuff we want to be entertained we want to be informed we want to be like energized and the publishing industry doesn't seem to care at all about that and I think that what's happened is they have found it because we keep hearing this thing about how like publishing, you know, publishing is actually on the right because when Kindles happened or whatever, everyone was, everyone was like very worried that, you know, the publishing industry would die out. And the publishing industry has been very proud of the fact that sales figures have uh, actually risen in the last few years. But what they've done is they've created this sort of like this very, um, this very like niche, well, not very niche, but they've created this kind of like, they've created this culture where books have become aestheticized, they've become these these kind of beautiful objects have become these things that like people like to be seen to have. They like to kind of Instagram them. They like to talk about the fact that they've read them, etc. Have you read the latest blah, 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 you know? And, and it's part of a kind of like, uh, it's, it's, it's a status symbol. Um, 
and they're part of a kind of like a middle class club and it's more like a kind of like indication that you're part of the club that you're initiated that you know who you know who the kind of like notable authors are or whatever and you're kind of you're in that world and you understand it and and that's kind of as much as it does but what we don't see i mean like there have been a few exceptions. There's been like Sally Rooney, for example, who I actually, you know, I, I like Sally Rooney's writing and I could talk about that for quite a long time. But there's, I mean, there's so, she's basically the only one um, to kind of like break through into kind of like any kind of mainstream prominence and um, from a relatively like working class background or to, to achieve the status that she has. Um, and um, yeah, I think that, I, I just think that basically the, the publishing industry realized that kind of like to secure its future it just needs to kind of like keep playing to this consumer base keep kind of like perpetuating this culture of just like very low stakes very easily like digestible books um that people would just kind of like buy as gifts for one another instagram talk about a little bit and then put away and forget for the rest of their lives what we what we didn't see and what we haven't seen in the last kind of 15 20 years has been any of those kind of like those works that have real mainstream cut through so I talk in the book about books like um, Train Spotting, for example, which you know was written by a working class author from Leith outside of Edinburgh. Uh, wrote about his experiences, wrote about them in a really, really, really challenging way. You know, a way that disgusts and scares and repulses us and terrifies us. And um, and that's important. Literature has to do that. Literature has to, literature has to do that to kind of engage you and to kind of get you know get you sort of switched onto these issues and to get you to kind of like negotiate your reaction to them and why do you feel that way about those characters and what does it say about you and what does it say about your place in society or whatever and so you know Trace Bottom is a really challenging book for that reason and then obviously it became like hugely famous because of the you know the film adaptation etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we we haven't seen that happen. We haven't seen that happen in the last fifteen to twenty years. And I use the American the American Psycho example not because I'm saying that we need you know another Brett Easton Ellis or we need another book of, of that vein written again but just to make the point that a book that kind of challenges the establishment on its kind of like you know obviously we don't know no none of us know anyone whose kind of consumer habits are as extreme as someone like Patrick Bateman's but they, it satirized a tendency that was very prevalent at the time of basically people wanting to kind of like have a have a slice of the middle class life and wanting to kind of like you know own the right accessories and go to the right restaurants and you know and it satirized that tendency and it kind of reflected it back to people and said you know what gross tendency you know what kind of like gross forces are informing this tendency and this trend and what does it say about you and do you want to be a part of it and do you want to essentially be part of this kind of like sociopathic tendency in our culture that's all driven by consumerism and greed um um, I use it as an argument, you know, to raise the point that basically we would never have a novel that was that challenging to people's uh, most deeply held sense of like propriety and, and correctness and, and kind of moral standing um, anymore, which I think is a great shame. I think that the best satire um, has to has to be grotesque, has to really challenge people, has mm. to kind of leave a really bad taste in the mouth, otherwise it doesn't work. Um, so, yeah. yeah We've talked we've about, seen oh you go on we've, yeah we've, Brett Easton Ellis has come up with surprising regularity on this show for an author who hasn't really done that much good work in the last decade yeah. um, and that's mostly been because of American Psycho like yeah he like like I I actually think Rules of Attraction and Glamorama are the better books but um, yeah American Psycho just left a really strong mark in everyone like I read it at fifteen I can still remember I can quote whole um chapter i can quote whole bits from that still um yeah it was a 
it was a book you don't get it anymore of because yeah like you say there's a very risk averse um and very middle class uh cohort of people who make books nowadays i i had a similar discussion with someone so i i preface this by saying i'm someone who has um mental health stuff i'm or mental health issues i'm someone who has ptsd i've been hospitalized all this kinds of stuff and that's important for the bit after i think that when we uh, we have the similar effect sometimes where we want horror but we don't want it to i say we and this i mean this as a general we like this desire to have horror that is not in turn um, triggering for the audience. And at least on a very personal level, I find that kind of horror to be toothless for me. That, like, I use horror as the sanctified space where I can deliberately engage with that kind of thing. Um, right. Because the fact, the fact that it's actually triggering real trauma that I have actually experienced and seen help for feels like it is now real to me. This isn't a spectacle that I'm putting on. This isn't art that is uh, wallpaper equivalent. This is the, the, we try to detach sometimes horror from the act of being horrified or the act of being terrified or experiencing terror. Um, and I think at that point, that's the more politically gross kind because that's just we want to delight in watching someone get chopped up and that's that's weird and kind of fucked up um but if it's something about once that very real tunnel is formed to like my actual lived life it becomes this incredible engine of power and obviously that's not for everyone i don't think it should be for everyone i don't think that people are wrong for not wanting that all the time you know, I don't because that's not how art works. It's not supposed to be universal to everyone. But we right. we have this kind of it's strange to call it a bourgeois affectation, but this thought that everyone has equal domain over every single space. Um, that we t we borrow it or not borrow it, we steal it from the language of accessibility. And that we shouldn't be deliberately exclusionary. Like women should not feel unwelcome in the world of horror literature and horror cinema. And there are many instances where that definitely has not always been the case. Um, there shouldn't be racial exclusion, things like that. To it, we pathologize this to then any specific person uh, has the sense of I must be allowed entry in ways that sometimes reverse that power dynamic. So it's like this piece of art that is so powerful to you precisely because of its immense toothsomeness now must be defanged because I want to experience it, but it's too toothsome for me. And it's like, well, it's not, this isn't for you. This isn't like... This isn't a piece of work that is designed for you and demanding that it become less effective for the people that it is for so that you can throw it on on Netflix when you want to have a laugh with people and you don't want a movie that's too scary or like, oh, I want a literary novel, but I don't want it to, you know, you know, be too real. I don't want I want characters to either be this like saintly 
uh, eternally martyred figure or have this beautiful life with no real challenge or alternatively have the shit kicked out of them relentlessly with no real sense of yeah it's 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 infuriating no, no, i think that like that's actually really revelatory to me hearing you hearing you put it like that because i think that's that's exactly it's exactly how i feel and i hadn't been able to articulate it in that way and that i found actually there was something really for me personally as well like to be completely honest like you know i i have i've had similar things to you you know i've experienced i've experienced extreme violence in the past and um i actually found work that engaged with that and engaged with some of the kind of like you know the things that cause it you know whether that be kind of like toxic masculinity or whatever or whether that be kind of like you know socioeconomic strains or whatever i found that very 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 interesting and and i sort of wanted to defend the right for it to exist for that reason um and i yeah hearing you put it like that it's been really interesly for me so i've learned something and i found that like <laughs> Like, I think sometimes we, we presume that these things have to be presented equally to all audiences. And I think in regards to something like work that can be intensely challenging, that we, sh we should be sensitive to the fact that not everyone, one, wants that, two, is emotionally prepared for, you know, any number of those things. I think those are very fair things to keep, in, to keep into account, but I don't think that means that it shouldn't exist. And that's where we sometimes get the rub with certain people. And we see that a lot in this ties back to the working class literature thing we see this so so fucking much in the world of uh literary fiction um that there's this prescribed notion both on the interior and the exterior on the in on the exterior it's presumed there's that really annoying cliche that literary fiction is all about middle class white dudes uh in middle age having an affair on their otherwise decent wife um which is such a it wildly infuriating oversimplification of this very diverse field that like in attempts to call out the patriarchal impulse of the publishing world, it winds up eliding every woman writer, every writer of color, every queer writer, like they just don't exist in order to make this pithy joke work. Um, but then in the interior, we then pathologize that we're not allowed to show these sometimes like inexplicable human shittiness. Like it, we, we can't just have like, yeah, that character cheats on his spouse. Cause I don't know. He's shitty. Like he, this, yeah. he has, he has self justifications, but like, you know, look out into the real world. Why does it happen a lot of the time? Only two reasons. One, a lot of complicated shit or two, it's kind of shitty. Like <laughs> it's not, it's not a romantic shitty. It's not a crazy deep, shitty it's just eh, it's just shitty um but we run into that problem with it's hard to pitch literary fiction to people on the grounds of it it resembles and examines real life um because very similar to the pathology of only wanting novels about the working class if they're functionally these harrowing horror stories about how fucking terrible it is to be working class or how like beautiful and saintly and oh they're so wise because of their suffering they suffer and it makes them so wise the working class mm -hmm. yeah um that we then wind up se seemingly only wanting 
are seeing a market that only wants literary fiction that has like scare quotes, the answer or the insight, which almost universally creates really fucking bad fiction. And yeah. I read the memoir impulse as a reaction against that because it's at least nominally a way to capture real lived life, the way that the way that life takes its own shape. But even that is then molded to fit a frame. It's not like we even see this in like formal relations in work where they don't have um, interludes that don't necessarily build to anything. They don't have like weird asides that don't really fit. So even in this like, oh, even within memoir, that even in this genre that's supposed to be like, oh, I'm just going to show you actual life instead of this weird, totally irreal construct that no one really connects with. That then gets remolded to be this weird, irreal construct. And it's like, why, why are all of these so bad? Like, there's so many good books that come out every year, but how come almost all of them that make it onto the front table of these bookstores are so fucking bad? Like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I got, I got to shout out some. There are some working class writers who are doing it right now and who are making really good stuff. And we've even had some of them on this show. Yeah, like Bud Smith is absolutely number one, my favorite short story writer alive today. Is mm -hmm. toss up between him and Kelly Link. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's his name? Uh, bup, bup, bup. It's on my bookshelf. <laughs> um, Scott McClanahan. Um, his stuff about Appalachia is so so good, incredibly moving as yeah. an Appalachian myself. Yeah, it it is so good, and and his wife, oh sorry, girlfriend Juliet Escoria's book, um, Juliet the Maniac, was kind of middle class in its way, but it was still like raw and real and nasty, like being a teenager is. Yeah, uh, there aren't there isn't an equivalent of unless I've totally missed someone of in in the UK of people working class people writing about their real lives in in bud smith's case like while he's at his job like in his lunch breaks he writes incredible short stories i don't know if there's anyone out there in the uk doing that if if there is throw my way i'd love to have them on the show i'd love to read their stuff but i'm not seeing them right now no, i i've been like the thing is, uh, I, i'm yeah i mean there's a couple of people that i think are doing uh, you know good things there's a girl called adele stripe who wrote a book that i quite liked called Black teeth and a beautiful smile. Um, there have been, uh, but to be honest with you, it, all of the, sorry, all, I was about to like name check a whole load of books, but then all of them basically just end up getting like one book deals. Then they get forgotten about, and I'm not really. That's not really what I'm railing against. Like I think you can still find instances of working class people like being able to kind of like get their first novel published or whatever, or get like a little bit of like get a little bit of attention or whatever but what, what what we haven't seen is any one of those people rise to the same kind of like prominence as a lot of these kind of like you know these people who mm. come from the true world whose parents are kind of involved in that industry um etc etc so a, a, anyone mm. that eventually is going to end up being like another niche name another you know probably on a personal level can't afford to kind of like just make a living from their writing and has to you know do other jobs and whatever and so it's just that kind of like it's that mainstream cut through that i'm very interested in um what i also question as well is that like a lot of the stuff 
because, like, you know, I grew up in Birmingham or whatever, and if it wasn't mainstream, I wasn't really going to hear about it because it was, like, before the internet. And I, when I say mainstream, I mean, like, you know, written about in, like, Days and ID magazine, which were the kind of, you know, I'd buy those every month. And that's how I'd hear about writers. And, you know, and and that's how I heard about a lot of the writers that I loved during that time or whatever. But what I, I do worry now that, like, you know, we, you and I are, you know, uh, invested in this as a subject so we're going to know a few working class writers who've been able to succeed or prosper or whatever but I doubt whether like your average kid growing up at a council estate in Birmingham is going to be aware of them um mm, yeah that, and that, that, it, it would be of Irvin Welsh and Brett Easton Ellis I mean I I was reading Brett Easton Ellis in my council estate when I was a kid that's you know what what I did was as a kid in a crappy council estate was uh buy scary books and get beaten up by people and um yeah so um that was I mean that was quite an important sort of experience I remember you know because I, I was always into books I was a nerdy kid and it was that you know it was that affinity with that kind of literary world and being able to find those books that you know that I'd sort of heard about or an older kid at school that I'd met in the library said hey have you read this one and I hadn't and then I'd take it home and I'd read it and then you know they'd be talking about things that I vaguely knew about or a kind of adult life that I could relate to or kind of aspire to or whatever. I, that, that was so important to me, I think. Yeah. Um, I remember being a kid reading um, the Satanic Verses just because I've heard of it and I heard it was a scary, mean, edgy book. It turns <laughs> out it's complete crap. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's harsh on it. I think it's okay. Uh, I, I mean, okay, reading it at fourteen after you've read after you've read American Psycho is probably not the right way to read it. It's <laughs> it's not the best rusty book, but it's fine. Okay, okay. I'll, I'm, I'll I'm a weirdo. I think the uh, the What Is It of Florence is is his best book. Not read that. I forget. I forget the full name of it because it 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 was also fine. I don't get why people lose their nut over him, but it it, it it's a British thing. British okay. literary people hate Rushdie. Um, uh, the the Enchantress of Florence. That's what it was. I was like, just, okay. But, I was like, um, oh, it's a good book. And then I I moved on, as you should. So yeah, just um, to to cap cap off the show, you make some recommendations, some which I referred to as self help earlier, and which they technically, you know, okay, we won't unpack that whole term, but. Yeah, it was it was a rare and refreshing thing to see happen in a in a book of like theory. Uh, so, just briefly, what what are those recommendations? Just so so the folks at home can go and do them in their lives and become better people. So one of so the first one that I say is that we need to sort of like if we're frustrated with the present system, we're frustrated with the state of culture, etc. There's not much we can do about it in terms of like you know not, none of us are going to get hired into those kind of like big companies. We're not going to be able to change them from the inside. The likelihood of them changing anytime soon is very slim. One thing that we have control over, where we do have agency, is in our consumer habits. So if we can create a culture whereby we start to actually like boycott a lot of these kind of mainstream producers of books, music, literature. Uh, film etc and we create a you know a kind of mainstream culture where people actively go and seek alter independent alternatives we could start to kind of shift consumer trends it would put actually a lot of pressure on the sort of legacy media to switch up its game but even better than that hopefully it could kind of strangle them and it would give rise to a kind of a, a new a new media to supplant the old um, and that's obviously what organisations, well, even like you guys are doing by, you know, setting up a podcast independently, but that's what, you know, places like Novara Media have done and also like what Chapo, but like, and then also like 
in the literary world, places like um, Fitzcarraldo, who just had loads of success, but Repeater as well. Like these are all you know, independent alternatives that are trying to kind of do something new and do something different. And one thing I was thinking of, you know, doing is kind of asking people for like a year to like only consume indie um, art and culture. So like boycott the kind of mainstream legacy media. Um, which could be and, and just see yeah. how it changes your perspective on the world that's quite interesting mm. as well like I did a, I did a year of only reading women writers and I did a mm. year yeah. of only re writing, reading like non-white or like people that aren't white and it completely changes your perspective on the world if you do something like that and I think that if you only started reading independence it would change your whole you know world view and it's actually very yeah. empowering and, and you you know you start to find voices that are experiencing the world in a similar way to you or whatever and that's very galvanizing and that actually plays a huge part in kind of like building your self-esteem so that was one thing. And I, I kind of refer to that as kind of stripping the institutions of their prestige. So don't wait around for them. Don't wait around for them to change, kind of shift consumer habits by like going for alternatives. But also if you have aspirations of wanting to do something creative, don't wait around for them kind of like to admit you to their ranks and let you in. Like because all these alternatives exist, you can get in, you, you can find a way in, even if it's doing a, you know, a Patreon or doing a, you know, putting things up on a blog or whatever, like, the only thing that's kind of stopping people from doing that, and now we, ha I know we have to get onto the money question, and the money question is important. But that's going to come in up in a minute, because obviously I'm, you know, essentially on the surface I could be seen to just be advocating like kind of like you know a side hustle type thing or a kind of like, you know, kind of hobby. Um, but there are ways to monetize it. Um, but yeah, so. Um, if you have aspirations of doing something creative, don't sit there waiting for that to happen because you could be waiting forever and it might never happen. There are so many other alternatives at our disposal. And basically the only thing that's stopping a lot of people from doing that is this kind of this outdated sense of pride and wanting to be kind of um, accepted by the establishment and given the kind of seal of approval. Um, so that's, that, that's kind of the first one. The second one is to like find within the working day, like, start to protect your own time a little bit more and like obviously this comes down to like reading marks and kind of and the and theories of labor or whatever but like so the modern workplace is now trying to like literally take every single waking hour from you and conquer like not just your kind of like uh creative faculties but like you know your stress levels and whatever like if, if you find yourself every single night getting home from work too late to be able to like enjoy the evening or do something for yourself or if you're finding that your stress levels are impeding you from doing that or you're unable to sleep or whatever change your job like it, they're not they haven't paid for that stuff they have not paid for that stuff and if that's the way that you're feeling i would suggest like because there are you know there are jobs for all of us out there it's only if we kind of if we become attached to the idea of having to like earn a certain amount because we want a certain lifestyle or whatever um so for example i had jobs that were far more lucrative that i basically ended up leaving and gone and done far lower paid work um for the reason that it actually gave me a bit more of my freedom back and it was through doing that that I was actually able to do more of the journalism and stuff that I actually enjoyed which is lower paid but it you know I, it helped with my self-esteem and the way that I felt about myself and really I just had to kind of dispense with this sort of yuppie mentality that had been instilled in me since you know being a kid which was you know from Blair and Thatcher or whatever that like you know you have to be upwardly mobile you have to be earning x amount of money you don't like we can all live you know you can live comfortably um working in a bar or working in a restaurant or something like that um so those are two kind of access. The other one that I talk about as well is like this, the other thing that the workplace does is it tries really hard to like 
like I've talked about imposter syndrome quite a lot, but what it tries to do is kind of like iron out any divergent tendencies in you. So if you go, you know, if you work, especially in the white collar workspace, you know, you're actively encouraged to conform as much as possible. Don't talk about politics. Don't let too much of your personality shine through, you know, interview training and all of that is all around kind of getting you to like fit a mold and like behave in a certain way or whatever. And I think that is really damaging if you have any, you know, to any kind of creativity and any and any sense of like identity and who you are. So actively encouraging people to like not do that as far as possible. Um, obviously, you know, for some people, they might have to kind of like, you know, you might still have to like jump through hoops. You can't be going in and telling your boss to go and like fuck off. I get that. But like trying really, really hard to remain vigilant to the kind of like the, the language of the workplace and the way that it's trying to supplant who you are and kind of get you to kind of iron out any divergent tendencies in yourself, because that's the kind of that's the enemy of creativity. Um, and so th and things like just, you know, don't get rid of, you know, I've said like I was told to get rid of my accent. I was told to talk a certain way. I was told to behave a certain way. And I really regret a lot of that stuff because I think in there was a lot of my kind of essential identity and a lot of what was interesting about me. And um, so just kind of getting people to resist that. Um, and and also to David Gray, you know, talking about the David Graeber book and bullshit jobs. If you do find yourself in one of those kind of bullshit jobs where you are, you know, not the stakes of what you're doing are very low. So you're not, you know, it's not life or death. Uh, you're not caring for anybody. You are just literally churning out absolute garbage adjacent to the kind of like financial sector or whatever, whether that's in marketing or whatever. If you happen to find yourself in one of those jobs, fucking like do it on the company time. Like do as much as you can on the company time. Like they've so much has been stolen from us as people through this system or whatever that it's you are completely within your rights to steal back whatever moments of freedoms you can so if you've done your job for the day you've done the work for the day and no one's looking at your computer write your novel like on your computer write your poetry write your play like you know whatever it is you do try and find ways of kind of like doing as much of it on the company time um i think they are like the, they're the main ones um but yeah, and and the, and through doing that, through doing a lot of those things, I think when I first went into, you know, when I kind of first went into the working world, I felt very alienated from everyone. I felt very different from everyone. I felt very low and very depressed because I was like, right, I can't, you know, I'm I'm not fulfilling any of my goals. I'm very different to these people who seem to be achieving their goals. That had a really negative effect on my self-esteem and my self-confidence. And I started to think I was worthless or whatever. And as soon as I started to do some of these things and like taking back a little bit of control and having a bit more agency and feeling a lot less grateful to them for paying me for doing my job or whatever, um, I just became bolder and I didn't and I didn't care as much. And actually I was able, to, I think, to kind of like develop my own voice and know what I wanted to say and and start writing and start doing all this stuff. So I wrote the book, like I say in the book, like I wrote the book while working full time and just, you know, would sit there on my laptop and write it. Um, nice. Okay, I'll start doing that tomorrow. I hope I don't get fired. Exactly. exactly. No, no, I, yeah. know, I know that there is, you know, there is a way of reading that that makes it sound very privileged. And I do completely understand that. I know that if you, you know, if you are working as a cleaner or whatever, it's going to be very, very hard to do that and to kind of, you know, find, ways of working on the company time or whatever but it's more about like an attitude shift and it's i'm trying to talk to people of all you know of all kind of different persuasions and all different types of work about the, the opportunities that are available to them to do things um that that they feel like they're otherwise unable to do because of the present system um i uh i have i have a similar essay that i'd written called the perforated time which is um 
on on the exact same topic that we run into people saying that they necessarily don't have job don't have time to like read a book or don't have time to stay abreast of the news or things like that and it being one acknowledging it's a constant war of attention and emotional resources and a constant like emotional game of economics of what you're going to point towards um and not to diminish the intense amount of struggle and intense amount of sacrifice sometimes this stuff entails, but it can be done. It needs to have that caveat, I think, for some people of like, this may entail more sacrifice than you really anticipated, and you may be giving up time that you would have been devoting to other things in order to do these. But it can be done. And that sometimes is hard for people to hear. Um, because it underscores this other thing, which is that if we are able in some way to sacrifice in order to get something done on some level, that means that we want to keep the things we would be sacrificing more than we want to get that task done, be it making creative work or even making time for other creative work. And sometimes that can be a very hard pill for people to swallow of we have the self image of like, oh, I want to be an artist. And it's like, you want to be an artist, but do you want the workload and the sacrifice load that comes with being an artist, especially an artist with a job? And that's a very different kind of question. And one that you're not wrong for saying no to, but yeah, I, th I think you offer a good, um, the spirit of your argument of make use of what time you do have and then measure from there does this make me feel good and empowered enough that I'm willing to sacrifice things that I'm devoting to other tasks or uh, uh, responsibilities in my life towards this? Yes. Like, is this worth emotionally investing in? Hmm. Yeah, be smart about that. And uh, yeah, get Google Docs. That helped me yes. so much. Google Docs on your phone. I'm going to on Google Docs because... It, what was really good about it is I could like go, I could go on, I could access it on my phone. So if I had a thought while I was like on the train into work or on the bus, I could write into the doc. But then obviously it would be updated on my, you know, as soon as I got to my computer at work, as soon as I switched that on, I could then go and work on it there. And then obviously when I get home, then I can then just open my laptop and then write on it. So Google Docs, I should have said that in the book actually. I should have, I should have said like Google Docs is your friend, although I hate Google and I hate them. Oh, yeah. It's using the master's tools against them. In yeah. <laughs> I picked up the same thing from a, uh, a Warren Ellis, the comic writer, used to update his blog like all the time. And his his nonfiction writing, I think, is even better than his fiction stuff. Take that with a grain of salt if you've read his stuff and are like, I think he's mm -hmm. terrible. Um, the nonfiction is better, at least. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he brought up, this is like in the mid 2000s. It was right when Dropbox had become a thing. He was like, if you are a writer, get a Dropbox account because you can literally download modify and then re-upload your document and anywhere you go any computer you're using anywhere in the world you can keep working on your manuscripts and annotate them and anything like that and then obviously when things like dropbox was the first to incorporate that kind of like oh you can open a document in dropbox and type directly into it and then google drive sort of borrowed that um but yeah like a mind-boggling game changer hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It really, yeah, yes. exactly the same with Google Docs. It really, really, really changed. Yeah, you because know, I was, and then I was able to write my book basically while working full time. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, there's novels in Japan that have been written on like old flip phones. Um, yeah, just because the Japanese language, I guess, is a little easier for doing that. But uh, yeah, it, it's totally doable. So people at home, Google Docs your novels or flip phone. <laughs> even if if you're really cool, do it on a flip phone. You know that you know that good meme that one is legit true, and you should follow it whenever you can. Of shitting on the company dime. Mm. Um, you can bring your phone and you can write while doing that. I mean, I bring that up to people as well for for reading. It's like you have commute time. You have those kinds of downtime. It doesn't even have to necessarily be pointed towards creation, but you can take those small breaks and read a sentence at a time, read a paragraph at a time, or even when it comes to drafting, throw in notes, throw in a sentence or two. Um, Like, that's how... I, so outside of working for the sandwich shop, I also do this podcast and I'm a staff writer for three different websites and then do fiction and stuff. The only way that's able to get done is because of things like, oh, I came up with an idea at work. I'm going to come up with a plausible work excusable reason to step aside and jot it down. Like maybe you can't even get all of it down, but you can get the notes down so that when you sit down at your computer you don't have to think fresh from a blank page which is like the nightmare scenario for anyone writing anything um instead you can have like oh i have i have stuff to work off of and then Mm -hmm. the other thing which comes with all creative work is it takes way more patience than you think like no there's no upper limit to the amount of patience you might need um so letting things spool out sentence by sentence or paragraph by paragraph over long stretches of time is fine. There's a really great book called A Naked Singularity that a lawyer wrote on his commute back and forth from his job over the course of like five years. And then he self-published it through, um, I forget what website, but like a pretty big, just like self-publication website. And then the University of Chicago picked it up and gave it a printing. Most self-published work doesn't have that happen. Like most, like it's it's way less than I think a 100,000th of the total. Um, Very small, but it's still like, we see on Twitter all the time. I think like, Twitter and Tumblr and places like that, that these small artists can build a community around their work. It may not be a big community and it may hurt your ego to see how small that community really is. But then again, it would also probably shock you to look at how small the sales numbers for even names you probably recognize off the top of your head actually are. Oh, yeah. Like Like a decent book will be in the four figures. Yeah. That's considered success nowadays. Yeah. But um, hopefully, steal as much as you can can get at least into the five figures. <laughs> <laughs> so, which, yeah, I mean, that, I, that, yeah summon up real five-figure money with a four-figure <laughs> advance. Um, yeah, that that's, Wait, that's when you're in advance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the other secret in 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 the writing world. Holy shit, you got money before they got the book. <laughs> Fuck, man. Like, let's get sushi. But only once. Yeah. You can, <laughs> you can afford exactly one sushi on a book advance nowadays. We're going to be talking about this a lot next week because we got two literary agents on. We've, we've literally spoken to only writers and musicians and podcasters and comedians so far. 
We've never got someone from behind the curtain on the show. So we're going to waterboard them with questions and uh, <laughs> just find out what the fuck's going on in publishing right, right now. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they've got answers. We've got questions. It, we're going to get to the bottom of this. But yeah. um, Natalie, where can people find your book? And where can they find you online? I, um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, but they can buy my book from to buy from the publishers themselves it's mm-hmm. also available on amazon waterstones blackwell's bookshop uh, online bookshop and um there's a couple of american sites as well um ah, i can't remember them off the top of my head now um but they're the main ones you can get it on amazon if you're in, in the states um yeah and also you can buy it direct from the repeater website as well if you're in the states mm-hmm. which is the preferred way to do it i got mine at the um gift shop at the Tate Modern because um, I'm nice. super bougie and I just happen to be there. That's um, nice to know that they have it stocked there. Uh, yeah, they've got all repeated stuff. They've got Capitalist Realism, they've got uh, Stolen, they've got loads of... They're, they're, like, they've got a big stack of po- politics books that, that are like, if you just read those, you would get, you would understand the modern world. Awesome. Uh, and, yeah, and you were there. So um, yeah, go to, go to Tate Modern, folks. And there's a really good uh, main art thing in the turbine gallery but um yeah so yeah natalie thanks so much for writing this book making me feel less insane um and yeah and folks at home carry out those four four points do it get your google docs you you can (laughs) only be better for it so we're going to leave off with um some death metal because that's that's the other thing that makes us feel less insane (laughs) um this kind of ironically in this case um so vastum are a death metal band out of new york um they i think a lot of them are like intellectuals like they they have like master's degrees in various like um like uh fields of like uh humanities a lot of them have been in like other great bands like acephalix necrot Cardinal Worm, I think. And Necrot is so fucking good, by the way. Oh yeah. yeah they are so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Necrot just, are great. But um every time I think about that, I'm like, holy shit, that Necrot album was so fucking good. We're doing one with the skeleton holding the baby and uh, uh-huh. Oh I man, it was so album. death metal. It was yeah. oh, it was so death metal. And I this love- is like them if they were uh uh like horny uh, smart. Horny art students. Yeah. This is definitely also uh Layla Abdul Ralph, um, the guitarist and vocalist, is also in Hammers of Misfortune, which is a uh, fucking baller band. Yeah, they're in tons of stuff. Um yeah, they they get around and they, they also come together and make these incredible albums every few years. Uh so the new one is called Orificial Purge. Nice. The the the, low, the cover looks really great. Yeah, um, it's a it's a stupidly well designed cover. Which, yeah, it actually looks good as opposed to just like laughably tragic. <laughs> like it's it. So uh, we brought this up before. There's you know there's there's the one the elite tier death metal uh, aesthetic which is uh, garbage shitty, and that's great. Hmm. But a Necrot has that just garbage shitty. It looks like a bad fantasy novel. It's so good. And this is the other end, which is like a 
uh, a bad fake deep fantasy novel, like from the 60s or 70s, where you hold up the cover and you're like, what the fuck am I looking at? And you read it and you're like, oh, it's about spacemen. Mm, yeah. And that's also tight. I'm not knocking it. This, this, is, this is canonical shit. <laughs> Exactly. And yeah, and Vastum... Tracks one and two are called First Wound and Second Wound. Yeah. And that's about sex, I think. I don't know. It, I think it, so. they're, they're, they're one of the very, very, very few death metal artists who deal with sexuality in any way that, that isn't like gross and weird, like some certain cannibal corpse uh, songs that we won't mention. But yeah, um... they, they're, uh, this Vastum is uh, if Necrot was smart. Yeah, and horny. So yeah. um, we're going to play the second wound, uh, Eye on the Knife, uh, from... Uh, I was going to do Reveries and Autophagia, but um, I think I'm going to do... Yeah, Eye on the Knife, second wound, from Artificial Purge by Vastum, which is out now. It's mm -hmm. on there. And yeah, see, watch them oh, live. They're... Another baller thing about the band, every, tra every album only has six tracks. They keep it evil. I, I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay. Damn. Same group that put out Patricidal Lust, which is just fucking yeah. phenomenal. That's an incredible album. So yeah, check out their entire back catalog. It, it is oh, yeah. all, it is incredible. So um, come back next week. We're going to be talking about um, the, the industry, you know, the, the, the big eye, the industry, the big four, how to get published, you know, all that's good stuff. Uh, do definitely check out Steel as much as you can. So, so damn good. Um, mm. It will make you feel less insane. But um, here is some death metal by Vastum. <laughs> 